It is a spiritual battle. I thought maybe it'd be easy. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. We need to pray. We need to pray for people. We've got to get over some hurdles, some obstacles. What about COVID? What about this? What about being back in the room? I'm out of the habit. I'm out of this. Da, da, da. Rich ground for the enemy to get in, separate, divide, etc. So I just want to say, well done. If you're here, well done. Give yourselves a round of applause. Well done. Well done. Well done. Well done. Well done. Now let's pray. Let's pray for our brothers and sisters, for whatever reason, are still in that kind of battle of regathering. I do believe it's a spiritual battle. There's no, no point trying to work out all the other reasons and this and that and da-da-da. We need to just pray. God, whatever the reason, whatever the reason, will you regather? Pippa said a great thing there. We need to get back into our stride again. I like that. It's a bit like that, isn't it? Sometimes just get, get back in our stride again. Why? Because there's a dying world out there. And he's a church that's back in its stride. So please, I just want to encourage you. That's not part of my preach. That's just a freebie. Okay, now I can start. Sorry. Good to see you this morning. We are beginning a new series this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at the nine core values of New Frontiers. Over the years I've been in New Frontiers, uh, there's been a few occasions when they've grouped together, sometimes written down the core values. I think there was 30, then there was 17, now there's nine Stay around, we might get down to three or four eventually. But they distilled them down to nine a few years ago. And a few years ago, I was part of a conference where these nine were looked at. They were the focus. And my talk this morning comes very much from the material of that conference. And we thought it'd be a good opportunity as a church, as we are kind of in this regathering, reforming stage, you know, after lockdown. Let's look at some of the core values of the family of churches that we're part of. And just if you forget, we're part of New Ground. New Ground is part of New Frontiers. New Frontiers, big family. New Ground, small part of big family. How easy is that? Really, I don't know why people got so confused. <laughs> it's just called a sphere. It's not a problem. And this morning, the first value we're going to look at is being word-based, Bible-based. And to be honest, I'm not going to use the time I have this morning to try and persuade you that the Bible is the word of God. I'm not going to do that. But simply, this is what the Bible says about itself, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, with a capital S, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. By the way, that word useful, it's a bit more stronger uh, than maybe we think. It's not like, well, pick any one. There's lots of things that are useful. Yeah, there may be lots of things that are useful, but there is one thing that is useful for the training of Christians. It is the Word of God. That's what the Bible says about itself. And we need to either believe that and then act accordingly or not. If we don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God, then we can treat it like any other book we have. Stick it away, read it if we fancy, take from it whatever appeals to us. If we don't like it, just ignore it. Leave it on the bookshelf, collecting dust next to those old storybooks, magazines, cookbooks, whatever, whatever. If we don't believe that the Bible is the word of God, that's how we should treat it, like a doorstop, if we need a doorstop. But if we do believe the Bible is the word of God, the one book that the one God wrote, then I think we need to see it in a whole different light. We need to treat it in a whole different way to anything else in our lives. And really today I'm speaking to people who do believe that the Bible is the Word of God, who value it as the Word of God. I want to stir you, encourage you to uh, view it as that. So let me pray. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you for being able to meet today to worship, to sing your praises. Thank you for stirring us with some testimonies. And now, Lord, as we come to look at the subject of your word, we pray by your Holy Spirit, would you teach us and would you give us eyes to see and to understand exactly what your word is. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okie dokie, at the conference I mentioned, someone came up with this summary statement, which may well come up behind me, about what the Bible is. And Rosemary, my apologies, you haven't got my notes, so you're you know, just working it through, so that's all right. But there it is. They came up with this as a kind of explanation at root of what the Bible is. They said, the scripture is a standard of teaching entrusted to us that we might build according to the pattern for the realization of the fullness of the glory of Christ in and through the church. doesn't really trip off the tongue, does it? But we're going to break that down. We're going to look at those three elements, and then we're going to look at some key battlegrounds. Then we'll have some application points. So let's look at the first one, shall we? This idea that the Scripture is a standard of teaching entrusted to us. Romans 6, verse 17, verse 18 says, But thanks be to God that... Though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Now, in other translation, it uses the word standard, the standard of teaching, where the NIV uses this word pattern. And I like the, 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 the translation, a standard of teaching. In other words, the content that makes up the Word of God, the Bible, is a standard of teaching. And apparently it comes from this idea of something that you dye, not in terms of a color, but in terms of when you mold something, you shape it, you set something. And this is a body of doctrine, which just means a body of teaching that is supposed to shape us, to impact us as we are committed to it from the heart. There's nothing vague. There's nothing half-hearted here. There's a standard of teaching. There's a gospel that shapes us and conforms us to the image of what God originally made us to be. So when we commit to obeying it from the heart, it does its work. It transforms us, but not in the head. That's an academic exercise. No, no, the Word of God transforms us from our innermost being so that we can walk in the reality of what this verse says, that actually we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteousness. We're free to do what God wants. And these are the scriptures that have been entrusted to us. They have now claimed our allegiance. And actually, the Bible says some wonderful things about what happens when we commit and when we submit ourselves to God's word. It says you're no longer going to be tossed back and forward by every doctrine, every teaching, every fad and fancy, every book that's brought out telling you how to make a success of your life and sells 47 million makes the writer a multimillionaire. You don't have to be tossed back and forth by that, but instead, the Bible says, you can grow together to the full stature of Jesus Christ. 
And as a church and as individuals, as we are committed to being shaped together by the word of God, so silly and strange and fanciful and weird and so-called new discoveries that are actually old heresies come into our lives on our computer screens, on our papers, and we can see them for exactly what they are. And we can send them on their way without infecting and ruining our hearts and our minds because we have a standard. No, we have a plumb line. No, I have something that I can measure everything that comes up against and see how it stands up. And that is the truth that is in God's word. We know the gospel, therefore we're not taken in by false gospels. If you don't know the gospel, you are prey to every false gospel. Every so-called good news that is out there. And actually it's from that place of stability as we're rooted individually and rooted as a church that actually one another. We can play our part in the church as God has intended. There's a standard. There's a body of doctrine that keeps us from nonsense doctrine. There's a, there's a standard. There's a body of teaching that shapes the way we live by the power of the Holy Spirit, who is at work within us. And so this becomes a reality. We're not taken in by the foolish surface. Get rich quick. Get get easy life, get success, whatever the world peddles. We're just not taken in by it. Jesus, before he ascended to heaven, said to his disciples, now you go and make more disciples. So I've made you disciples, now go make more disciples. Literally, he said, go and indoctrinate them with the same body of teaching that I have been indoctrinating you with for the last three years. And the, the word, the concept of indoctrination is often seen as a bad, a negative, a dangerous thing. Or they've been indoctrinated with something. But you know, it all depends on what you've been indoctrinated with. Personally, I'm glad I've been indoctrinated with the COVID vaccine. I am glad. It might just save my life. I was chatting to a guy the other day whose wife's very senior uh, in the NHS dealing with uh, the vaccine. He said to me, latest statistics show... Only 1% of people currently dying from COVID have been double jabbed. Now, I was never great at maths, but that means that for me, I understand it. The figures show 99% of people who are dying from COVID have not been jabbed. Personally, that means I'm glad that I've been indoctrinated with the COVID vaccine because I see it as something good. And the truth is, spiritually speaking, you know what? We are all being indoctrinated by the world into what it collectively thinks. We... We don't live in a vacuum. We are actually all having our brains washed all the time. We don't like to admit it because we like to think that we're cleverer than that. But we're not. We're not cleverer than the world. We're not cleverer than the advertisers. That's why they play how many billions to advertise. Our brains are being washed all the time. The question is this. What is it being washed by? And what God wants to wash it by is his word. The answer is not to try and ignore or somehow live in a vacuum or somehow say, oh, I'm not having my brain washed. I'm too far too clever. That's ridiculous. Don't do that. God says, no, no, what you need is you need to be indoctrinated with the word of God. I want to wash your brain with my word. That is what will protect you from the rubbish. And it's his teaching. Jesus, when he said to his disciples, oh, go and teach them what I've been teaching you. It's his teaching. 
It's his teaching entrusted to us, so we don't get to mess with it. We don't get to tamper. We don't get to play about with it. We get to be faithful, to try and live it out as best we can, then pass it on to the next generation. This is a precious, precious standard of teaching entrusted to us. Amen, first point. Second point, that we might build according to the pattern. What does that phrase mean? Well, I think we see in the Old Testament, especially around the instructions, uh, how to build the tabernacle. You know, we were doing Meet the Bible. We've just done a year of it. We're doing Meet the Bible 2, starting from October. If you want to join, let us join. But in Meet the Bible, you have to read some of those pages of instructions. We are on this this big and make it out of wood and I want 47 curtains over there and pomegranates on top of that and pages and pages of it. Have you read it? You know, I'm I'm there every morning. I do a chapter a day. I've got 15 days of these kind of instructions. But there was a pattern as to how the thing was to be built. And in Hebrews 5, the writer kind of picks up on this idea of a pattern. says, they served at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warm when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. See, God knows what he wants our lives to be like. He knows what he wants his house, the church, to look like. He has opinions. He has instructions. He knows how he wants things to be built. Often we don't give him credit for that, but he, he does. And the church... The house of God, he knows how he wants things to be. He's not left us guessing. Yeah, you might have to contextualize into different cultures, but we always imitate first. We always ask, what's the pattern? What's the pattern? How should I build my life? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. If only God would have given me some clues. We laugh, but it's, it's all here. It's absolutely all here. He's not left us guessing. We might want to contextualize, but it all happens within the revelation that God's already given. We might want to innovate. Are there new ways to share the gospel, but the gospel never changes? might be good to contextualize. How is it best to reach this particular group of people? But always within the boundary of God's word, because God knows how he wants us to build our lives and how he wants his church to be built like he knew how the tabernacle was to be built, like he knew how the temple was to be built. God knows he's written it down for us. That verse, not the verse, that statement goes on to say, for the realization of the fullness of the glory of Christ in and through the church. Again, do you remember the story of Moses? Um, The tabernacle, just as God, you know, I said in Exodus 25 to 40, had to be built a certain way, this tabernacle. And then what happened? The glory of God filled it. So it was for purpose. It wasn't just a set of rules. Oh, great, now I've got God's set of rules. It was a purpose. The purpose was that the glory of God fills the tabernacle. Exodus 40, 15 chapters of curtains and pomegranates and woods and seven cubits. For the purpose of Exodus 40, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So it may be a bit tedious and a bit boring, but you know what? There's a big and obvious lesson here that God knows how he likes things to be. And if we will build according to how God wants to build, then the glory of God will come. You build your life according to the pattern, guess what? The glory of God will come. We build the church according to the pattern, then the glory of God will come 
and fill it. Same with the building of the temple. Very precise pattern, and then God filled it. And you know what? We, brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian here, we don't live under those old covenants. We live under the new covenant where we've got fullness and access to the Holy Spirit that outstrips and outshines anything in the Old Testament. It wasn't that that was wrong. That was wonderful. But guess what? The covenant that's going to be put into place through Jesus' blood is going to be better than those. Because God will not see Jesus' glory diminished for anything. So that was wonderful. This is going to be really wonderful. All purchased for us by Jesus' blood. But we still need to operate according to the pattern. Because actually, the world needs to see something of the glory of God. The world needs to see it. People need to see something of the majesty, the fullness of the glory of God. And maybe when they see, maybe their foolish questions and fist-waving at God will be silenced. There's something of it whispered in creation. There's something of it that people see when they see creation in its fullness. They want to say something. They don't know who to give it to. They say, oh, Mother Nature. <clears throat> no, because something, they see something of the glory of God. When people experience something of the glory of God, then things that they thought were central and fundamental and life was all about this just get shoved to the one side. And actually, the church is to be filled with the glory of God through Christ because we are now the dwelling place of God. We are the temples of the Holy Spirit. It's us. It's us. These, 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 these jars of clay, these living stones, these weak, foolish people that somehow got saved because Jesus called our names. Somehow we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the dwelling place of God. And knitted together, somehow doing life together through all the ups and downs, somehow brings the glory of God. And people who don't know Jesus can look on and see. Wow. <laughs> so we value the word of God. It's the standard. It's the pattern that we are looking to build. But we're not looking to build so we can say, nah, 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 nah. We're just goody goodies. We build so we can say, you know what? Anything good you see of me is because because of God, because of him. He's done something. I was an idiot. And then he came and found me. Anything idiotic I do is still down to me. Anything good you see in me is down to him. <laughs> so where are the battle lines drawn in our day? Let me just zip through some of these for you. Number one, a charismatic Achilles heel. Yeah, charismatic means we believe the gifts and ministry of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, prophesying, healing, etc. I'm a charismatic Christian so I can have a pop at us here. I think it's all right. See, it says that all Scripture is God-breathed, but sometimes I've noticed the truth is that some Christians who are charismatic are actually less careful about their handling of the Word of God than those who are not charismatic. I've noticed that. Somehow, Christians who don't believe that the kind of Holy Spirit does that kind of stuff anymore, they believe the Holy Spirit, but they just don't believe he does some of those gifts anymore. Actually, they can be more rigorous in their handling of the Word. And sometimes there can be a carelessness, I think, and I've heard it under the kind of banner or excuse, well, we, we, we have the Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit's going to ignore the Word. The Spirit of God is going to ignore the Word of God. Yeah, I don't think so. And somehow, we may start then, if you go down that road, you start to look for dramatic moments and power encounters, and somehow they take priority over the Word of God. So you don't hear what I'm not saying. There's nothing wrong with dramatic moments, power encounters with God, but they're never as a trade-off, never as a replacement for a rigorous, regular engagement with the Word of God. Never. 
Because if you do that, you're going to start to be led by inclination and uh, intuition and hunches. And well, I think that. Well, maybe that. Well, maybe that. If you're, if you're no longer being fed and rooted and corrected and sharpened and shaped and redirected and sometimes told, Dale Barlow, don't be such an idiot. Okay, God, thank you. If you're not being those things by the word of God, then the danger is we drift. And we drift into all manner of nonsense. Scripture is safe. It's a plumb line. Keeps us from going where we shouldn't go. And let's be honest, our flesh is lazy. We love a shortcut. Oh man, give me a choice between an in-depth Bible study where I've got to read and think and work out where was that and why that map and why did they say that? And I've got to go, oh, just put your hand on my head and pray for me. Which one are we taking? So it can be an Achilles heel. Let's not let it be an Achilles heel to us. Second one, human tradition. Jesus said, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Ouch. Jesus says this to you, you're in trouble. In one translation where it says you have a fine way, it's translated as you're experts. You're really good at this. Well done, says Jesus. One thing I commend you for, you're brilliant at this. You set aside what God says to do what you want. It's not really, is it? But tradition can be very powerful, can be a trap. But if we move away from the scripture, then we can get into a whole load of traditions, slavery, nonsense. I'd never heard this, but have you heard the turkey story? Uh, we never did this in my family, so I didn't know. But apparently lots of families, they cut off the legs of the turkey, stick them on top, stick it in the oven. Apparently so. When they, someone said, why do we do this? They went back generations and they found out that ovens were smaller back in the day. And turkeys were the same size. So they had to cut off the legs and put the legs on top, stick it in the oven. Generations later, family's still doing it. It's nonsense. It was, it made sense. Now it doesn't because someone actually stopped asking the question. And we mustn't be those who stop asking the question. What does the scripture say? But what does it say? And there are many things I think that can lead us away from building according to the pattern of scripture. And then we drift towards traditions. We drift towards what people say. It might be success Peer pressure, not thinking, lack of time, pragmatism, cowardice, you name it, could be loads. We've just got to avoid it. You'll be glad to know I've saved the best till last. The third battle line is the worst battle line, the hardest battle line, the battle line, unfortunately, that runs right the way through here. Because it is what I think C.S. Lewis coined as sovereign self. Sovereign self, particularly bad in the West, but with the internet and globalization, this one is on the rise all over the world. And this one causes pain and hurt to us if we're going to sort it out. But I think for many Western believers, and maybe for many younger age Christians, they operate within a worldview that's got a sovereign self framework rather than a sovereign God framework. And that worldview has self at the center. Self at the center. Everything else revolves around me, my rights, rather than God at the center. If you drill down, you realize quickly it's all about my life, my dream, my blessings. It's all about me, as we used to sing back in the day. 
me-centered, not God-centered. It is the spirit of the age, so to speak. And, and if you actually have clarity of doctrine as set out in the Bible, then as a church or as an individual, that is a massive threat to sovereign self. This book is a massive threat to sovereign self. Because sovereign self thrives where there's kind of this idea of a weak, vague, non-specific, poorly interpreted doctrine. God doesn't really mind. God doesn't really care. I know. I think God thinks that, or maybe you think God thinks that, but I don't. And I kind of think this, and they can live quite happily in my life. What I want and what God wants happily coexist. It's like the room. There's room in my life for the flesh and for the. And for the word of God, it's kind of okay, the spirit, the flesh, it's okay. But it's just not true. It's just not true. The spirit of God does not live and coexist quite happily with our flesh or the things that the world or the devil wants to teach us. God goes to war on those kind of things. Because in the end, if your end goal is me, how I feel, my blessing, my comfort, my being in control, then the Holy Spirit is just not involved. Because again, just think it through, the end goal of all the wonderful things that we think about, like salvation and adoption and being children of God, is for his glory. Even your my salvation is for his glory. It's not primarily for our benefit, though it is for our benefit, praise God. It's not primarily for that, because the Holy Spirit is about making him glorified. The Holy Spirit is concerned with his glory. Sovereign self is concerned with my glory. Let me read a few verses for you. Here's one. Daniel 4.35, killer for sovereign self. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does, that's God. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Killer, isn't it? Written by Nebuchadnezzar after he'd been humbled for seven years and had to live as an animal. Now his reason has returned. He's making this reasonable statement. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love or care people because we know he does. That's been established. What it means is there's no room for sovereign self in the kingdom of God. There's no room. It's God first. We are the created beings. We don't have the right to turn around and say, God, don't do that. Don't do that. Why'd you do that? That's what people do, isn't it? Daniel 4, 35, got no right to. Because he's God and you're not. <laughs> How about this one then? This is even worse. Luke 9, 23, Jesus. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. If you want a strong Christian faith, a robust Christianity, you're going to have to die to self. You're going to have to die to yourself so that the resurrection life of Jesus can flow through you. But if you resist dying to self on a daily basis, you end up with something that is compromised, something that is weak, something that is insepid. You see, sovereign self's not interested in the great truths of God or his church. It's only interested in me and how God can help to fulfill my destiny and how the church that maybe I go to if I fancy it, if it does everything I want it to do can help me fulfill my destiny. Yet suffering for the gospel is a, central and a, is a central and essential Christian doctrine. And I'm afraid it doesn't start with jumping on a plane and going over there somewhere and dying as a missionary. It starts with dying to self. I hope you're enjoying this message this morning. God is looking. God is, I might as well tell you, God is looking for a people who are weak in themselves but strong in him. 
whose assessment of life includes struggles and joy and blessing, but who it's not all about us. It's not all about ease. It's not all about us being on the throne of our lives. It's about this battle putting him on the throne of our lives. He carried the cross, but we have to carry our crosses. We have to carry our cross, which means every day we have to die to something. In the good times, in the bad times, not just on special occasions. If you want to be a disciple, every day you're going to have to say no to something in your flesh. Every day you're going to have to say no to something that the devil tempts you with. Every day you're going to have to say no to the world that says, go on, do it, deserve it, you've earned it, you can, it's okay. He won't mind, he won't see. Every day there's got to be a no to self so there can be a yes to Jesus. Every day a death to self so there might be a resurrection Jesus' life-giving power flowing through us. That is what the Christian life is. And when, Je when Jesus said daily, I think he meant daily. The gates of heaven are wide open because of the work of the cross. But guess what? You come on your knees. And once you've come on your knees, you stay on your knees if you want to grow. You have to keep dying to yourself. Christians, I find, love that verse about the word of God is a double-edged sword. You know, it's double-edged sword. I just think they picture themselves as knights of old with a big double-edged sword going in there. What a, what a defeat. You know, I said, well, I'll be good, wouldn't I? You know, some kind of Errol Flynn, squash, buckling, the word of God, some of that. Boof, boof. I think that's how, certainly how I like to see it. But actually, I think that the word of God as a double-edged sword has been used in my life more to cut off and kill things that shouldn't be there. Mostly in here. Hmm. See, the word of God threatens and kills sovereign self. It wants to do damage, but it wants to do some damage to us and stuff that shouldn't be there. Which is why I think many Christians leave it shut away safely in its holder. Don't get that out. Few application points. I've got one minute. I'll be quick. Uh, number one, let's abide in his word. It says in John 8, 31, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Other translations, if you abide in my truth. We love this verse. We use it on seasons like this, the freedom season. But you know, there are four parts to that process. It's about abiding in truth, being disciples, which means to be a learner, Knowing the truth and then the truth setting us free. But I think we love the fourth part. We sing about the fourth part. We pray, God, set me free. But there are three other stages to it. To abide in the word. To know the truth. To read it. To live in it. To be in submission to it. To be a disciple means to be a learner. To be a learner of the word of God. And to know that. And then, and then, fourth stage, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will be set free. I must let the word of God dwell in me richly because my mind and my heart are so messed up. They're always under attack from the world and the devil. We're promised freedom as Christians, but the reality is sometimes can be very different. Many Christians get trapped in things like pornography or fear or materialism or selfishness. How comes how comes there's a promise and yet the reality can sometimes be very different? I think it's because freedom comes not just when we say, no, the truth and the truth will set you free. No, no, let's abide in the word of God. Let's be his disciples and submit ourselves to it. Let's do that. And then, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the truth 
can set us free. There needs to be a rigor. We need to come to God with the right heart. We need to abide. We need to spend time. We need to delight. It's not an optional extra. Oh, well, I read the Bible three years ago once when I fancied it. No, well, that's not abiding, is it? It's not abiding. How can you abide? It's not abiding. Secondly, do not take or add anything away from the gospel. We've got no right. It's the gospel. It's the standard. It's his word. We don't overemphasize. We don't underemphasize. Someone once said, you've got to learn the emphasis of scripture by being in the scripture. I thought it was very helpful. You've got to learn the emphasis of Scripture by being, I would say, daily in the Scripture. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Some Christians sometimes ask me, they want a simple answer to complex questions. Very complex questions. The God, God and suffering, what's the answer? They want three points, absolutely, perfectly backed up by three fantastic proof texts. And I think to myself, what are you talking about? These are such complex issues. The only way we can start to get our head around it is if we're in the Scriptures ourselves. And we start to have our thinking shaped by the Scriptures over years. And then maybe we might be qualified to start to express some kind of opinion about the big issues. Are you with me? It's not, it's not as easy. It's not a cooking recipe. Cut the bread, stick it in the toaster, press the button, toast comes out. It's not like that. Oh, that it was, but it's not. I've been reading the Bible every day for the last 15, 20 years. You ask me about suffering, I'll give you a go, but man, be, be, and people, yeah, Chris, just give us an answer. It's, since when? Um, you're trying to get a mere human being to tell you the, the, the mysteries of God. And you want it in, in, in four minutes, in three sentences. It's part of the reason why I get involved in things like Meet the Bible, because I want Christians who say, no, I'm going to let the scriptures. I'm going to get in the scriptures that the scriptures might get into me. And then, actually, I might be able to express something of something about God, about the complex issues of life. Number three, finally, stand firm. Because if you don't, you'll be moved. Stand firm. But you know what? Standing firm means moving forward. It's a funny thing in the Christian life. If you say, I'm going to stand firm, that just means standing still. You're going to go backwards. You'll be like the person who gets on the beach, comes here, stands around, looks around. Oh, where's my family gone? You've been moved all the way across there by the tide. I, I think Christians say they're going to stand firm. What they mean is I'm going to stand still. And then they wonder why they've drifted. Why they drifted into all kinds of isms or apathy or fear. It's because they, they, they stand firm, but they mistook that for stand still. If you want to stand firm in the Christian life, you've got to walk. You've got to keep walking. You've got to keep growing. You've got to keep reaching out for God. It's like you were on a travelator, you know, at the airport. You don't keep walking on those things, you end up back there. That's a Christian. I found the Christian life like that. I've got to run hard after Jesus. Otherwise, before I know it, I'm gone. I don't want to be there. So stand firm, but don't mishear me. When I say stand firm, I don't mean stand still. I mean pursue Jesus with everything that you have. Value number one, word-based. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs>